Welcome to Unknown Artist. I'm your host, Nikki E. Taylor, that Nikki you know, and today's guest is Wanda Waterman. I like them fairyland tales. They taught me much about the trolls, the beasts, the beauties and such. It's useful to know that a hero can fail and that a candy house might be a witch's jail. I like the one about the princess with the golden ball. Got lucky when she slammed a frog against a wall. Or the drudge in the cinders with the animal friends who cleaned her up and got her to the handsome prince. But my good enough guy, he ain't no prince. No knight in shining armor with a sword that glints. My good enough guy, he's pretty good company. My good enough guy, he's quite good enough for me. We ladies all know about the kind of guy. Makes you melt like butter, makes your heart capsize. The winning smile, the dazzling eyes, the lips so sweet, so packed with lies. My enamorata, he ain't no con, no smooth talking sailor poised for moving on. He's rough around the edge, but I'm a lucky girl. Cause a little bit of grit is how you make a pearl. My good enough guy, he ain't no prince. No knight in shining armor with a sword that glints. My good enough guy, he's pretty good company. My good enough guy, he's quite good enough for me. Happily ever afters, they're for the elves and for the high school queens that hardly know themselves. Now that I know me, I'm quite content to be your lady in the richness of reality. So snuggle up close and gripe about your day. No sighing and pining for a land far away. A fairyland tale, if you is all about the magic of the eternal now. My good enough guy, you ain't no prince, no knight in shining armor with a sword that glints. My good enough guy, you're pretty good company. My good enough guy, you're quite good enough for me. That was super jazzy. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's kind of my thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What what jazz do you like? Um, I pretty much like all of jazz, but I was in a Dixieland uh, band for a little while, and so I have a lot of those progressions in my head. Mm-hmm. But I, I, my two favorite eras are Dixieland and late 50s, early 60s. Oh, yeah. 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 Good eras, yeah. for sure. But I pretty much like all of <laughs> jazz, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like there's there's a lot of songs of, like 
that they talk about romance and, and talk about like their relationships and uh, I I don't know if I've ever heard one about a good enough guy, and I but I feel like this is a phenomenon that like we're all very much aware of, because I know that like myself and as well as like so many women that I know who date men, they're just like, I, like you can find someone who really excites you and have that great rush, and then like it amounts to like no real relationship. Exactly. And then you can have someone who's like a fantastic person to be in a relationship with, but you don't have that ex- same sort of like excitement. Right. Yeah. And I think we're a little bit mistaken in pursuing that rush Mm -hmm. because, um, if it once you, once you evolve spiritually a little bit and I'm not, I'm not trying to sound patronizing or to anybody who hasn't followed the same path that I have, but you, you, after a while you learn to see, um, intimate relationship as a really important opportunity for spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. And, the rush, the excitement, the the false expectations, the stories, all that kind of gets in the way. Mm-hmm. And often uh, relationships will burn out because we, we either, oh, the spark is gone or, or, or uh, and, and you shouldn't, the, and the spark can be very addictive. That rush can be very addictive and it can be very destructive. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, you, if you want real relationship, it's somebody that you can be in the moment with. What made you realize that, that you wanted to write a song about this? I wrote the song last year when I was having uh, some relationship issues, and I started to ask myself a lot of questions about what my culture had taught me about the nature of love. And I know I had had people tell me several times that the whole modern idea of, Atlant- of, of Atlantic love, of romantic love, <laughs> <laughs> was is fairly new. It kind of originated with the... Um, not not romantic love, but the idea that every serious relationship should be a falling in love. It's kind of unrealistic, but it's something that was really promoted during the Victorian era and just went nuts from there. And because so much money can be made from it, it's a very popular idea, but it can be a very, uh, it can become just another addiction and something Mm -hmm. that keeps you from growing. And very often, uh, the people who seek to fall in love over and over again, and, and they're just looking for the next one and the next one and the next one, it's like there's something that you need to face mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm saying that from personal experience there was something I needed to face and when I faced it it just no longer became necessary mm-hmm. to feel that that all it was just enough to have a good enough guy mm-hmm. or you know or a gal if that's what you want so <laughs> yeah I find uh, whenever whenever something is like going wrong in my life or if I'm you know like just feeling kind of stuck in some way that's when I go on to like tinder and okcupid and <laughs> Yeah, you know, start like dating and 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 it's usually just because I'm trying to distract myself from whatever I have to deal with. Exactly. I found that I was at my most emotionally needy in the relationship when I was exhausted mm-hmm. from work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just needed to find a way to deal with that without demanding that my partner make that up for me. Yeah, I think that's the neat thing about relationships in general is like the the amount that we expect relationships to to fulfill all of our things mm-hmm. and then you start realizing like oh it's not actually them it, this isn't on them right this is, this is me <laughs> exactly i need to fix me 
And then you can, you know, share something enjoyable with your partner or partners. And that's you know, right. It's and if you have two whole people, two people who are doing that, then you then you have a chance of a of a happy relationship, mutually, mm-hmm. a mutually beneficial relationship. Yeah, and it's it's hard, and no one tells you that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because there's no money in it. There's no money in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if if you feel completely fulfilled and and good with your life and yourself and everything, uh, then there's no weakness to exploit to try uh, yes. to you know get you to spend money to right. fulfill those things. What's wrong with me? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So many fairy tales, though. Yeah, it is. Th- there are. There are. And they're so yeah. great to get lost in. Yeah. But, like, it's yeah. not I, real I'm life. kind of a realist when it comes to, like, you know, I, I remember in school when uh, all the girls were, like, we if you were, like, five pounds overweight, it was the end of the world. We look at pictures of ourselves, and we, we're at now, and we say, oh, we were so skinny. Why did we think we were so fat? But I remember being, I think, in the 11th grade and noticing that the most popular girl was pretty obese, and so, and then then I started questioning what the world was telling me about what you had to be to deserve love. Mm-hmm. And then when I that really, and then I actually started looking at the way things were and realizing this mythology that the, the capitalist world has, the market world of marketing has foisted on us is just a, a big lie. It's just meant to make money for somebody else and yeah. not to help us. I actually, I wrote an article like last year um, about the capitalism of, of love and how ah. like capitalist ideas really shape our view of what love is supposed to be like and our, our ideas of what kind of exchanges we need in, in romance and, and affection. Yes. And it's amazing how much that affects the way we view the world and, it, and yeah. ourselves and relationships. Yeah, that, that whole thing ties in with, with this, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole idea of if, if I want to be in, a, in an intimate relationship, how much money am I going to have to spend and how much of myself am I going to have to give up? Mm-hmm. Why should we even be asking those questions? I feel like these questions are what often leads me to want to just be single forever. Yeah. (laughs) Don't blame you one bit. (laughs) Just like, I'll live on my own. It's great. I don't have to take care of anyone. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm newly single too. And and it's really... uh, it's it's much more wonderful than I ever imagined. It's it's been a long time since I was single, but I'm more mature now, and mm-hmm. uh, it's really a very satisfying life. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure what your past relationships were like, but I I um, definitely have been in a number of relationships where you know I was doing as like the woman in a like heterosexual relationship. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was doing all of like the housework. I was managing a lot of things and then mm-hmm. also expected to do like my regular job and yeah. then all of and my bring in pursuits money. and yeah. yeah, all of that stuff. And I was like, God, why? Like, this is too much. It, and it is too much. And, and I, and ha- when did that happen? Like we went from the woman just stays at home and doesn't have to earn a living to, well, wait a minute. We want to be out in public. We want to be earning our own money. We want to have careers and but it was supposed to be 50/50 you shared the housework mm-hmm. and that never happened. <laughs> yeah, what what ended up happening is that like the the social values didn't actually shift enough. No. And so what ended up happening is you have like women shifting yes. in saying like I want to be able to be self-sufficient and and have my own like economic power and and all of that kind of stuff, but then you have men being resistant to that and just being like well you can do that so long as you were doing all the other stuff yeah, that exactly. you were supposed to be doing before. 
uh, then that's fine. Do whatever else. People you still do. walk into a messy home and think, oh, the woman here, or say the woman must not be a good housekeeper. Ugh. They don't blame everybody <laughs> that's living in the home, right? And yeah, it's still that the the expectation is that the woman is responsible for the well-being, the upkeep of the mm-hmm. home. And I think there's a decent amount of of change. Like there's. I think the, the the amount of counterculture of people who are like battling that is probably growing, but there's mm-hmm. still quite a strong yeah. precedent of keeping that. that there's culture. that social pressure still there. You can still feel it. Yeah, and like even if I find for myself, even if my partner isn't pressuring me to do those things, I find like I will put that on myself. Yeah, oh, we've of totally. We've totally internalized it. We've totally internalized it. These messages that we've been hearing, and boy, it's a battle to to uh, stand up to those messages. <laughs> so is it's so tough. <laughs> like when people start saying, like, "Oh no, it's fine." Like feminism won. We're good now. It's like that's not true because no. feminism is actually very, very young. This is yes, <laughs> yeah. only been a few decades, really. Yeah. And even within that, it hasn't even really gone as far as it needs to go. Uh, and then there's still so many people who are so like still living in the past or remember yeah. it so well or, and can't be free of it. It takes generations. To, it like, takes a long time to undo all that programming. That, that well, yeah, it was centuries of yeah. being subhuman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like that doesn't go away in a couple of decades. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 not everybody. You know, I can remember a time in my life when I really was not aware of uh, how those those role ex- expectations affected me as a mm-hmm. woman. I just wasn't really aware. And then when I opened my eyes, well, now I see it all the time, but it's just, it's still kind of too big of a battle, and I think we just need more solidarity. Yeah. You know, it's when, when I, I lived in, uh, in the Middle East for, uh, for a couple of years, and uh, what I saw there was, um, I, I noticed, gosh, the women are so competitive with each other for male attention. Even though it was a country where it was very progressive, uh, the women were very, very uh, competitive for male attention and, and male approval. And there wasn't a lot of solidarity uh, among the women. And then I came back to Canada, and I thought, oh, thank God I can go back to Canada. And I kind of found the same thing but in a different form. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of disguised. It's, it's very cleverly disguised because yeah. it's not cool for us to, you know, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be friendly to each other and we're not supposed to be, you know, stepping on each other up the career ladder, but it's still happening, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just, uh, we, could, uh, we could be so much stronger if we could just be on each other's side. Stop stabbing each other in the back. Stop... Uh, you know, having affairs with each other's partners or whatever we do mm-hmm. to, um, to to hold each other back. I think we'd be so much stronger if we just cut that out. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I blame individualism. That's... Because, <laughs> like, we're, we're, we're taught to think, like, oh, no, like, we have our own identity politics, but... On top of that, there's there's that sort of like capitalist idea of like every man for himself, yes, and like getting yeah. what you can um, because there's only limited resources and you need to like fight and compete for that, right? Um, and so then you kind of like lose out on that idea of like collectivism and like maybe if we were all working towards this together, then this would yes. actually be good and accomplish greater things. It, it would. Um, th- to me, the ideal society would be a uh, 
like the perfect match would be like a communal society in which every individual is respected because when the communal societies that I've known their weakness was that they didn't respect individual feelings and gifts and um, weaknesses or whatever there was just okay you belong to this commune or this collective and that's who you are you're just mm -hmm. a member of this collective that was the weakness but occasionally you do come across groups of people who function well as mm -hmm. a collective and yet each one each individual is respected their their feelings and their dreams and their desires are are respected and that's you know that's my ideal society yeah. and in incredibly <laughs> rare but that's yes, incredibly idea. rare. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have also like kind of idolized that that way of thinking and and um, like that kind of organization that I think is, from my understanding, is pretty common in like a lot of uh, like native communities yes. where you yeah. you get to know everyone in your community really well, and you and you don't you know try to mold them into a specific yeah. pattern like you know, colonizers tend to, um, and <laughs> instead you're like, oh, okay, you are your own unique human. Yeah. And this is what you bring to the community. Yeah. And this, the way, yeah. this is the way John is. This is the way Betty is. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
talking about before where, you know, women have kind of gotten the shit under the stick for so long that it takes a long time to recover from that, to heal from that, to move forward. And similarly, like, child and youth ex- exploitation mm-hmm. is something that routinely happens and should never happen. And we can't believe that it keeps happening. I know. It's I, unbelievable. I That's something that really bothers me, that um, it is unbelievable despite so much evidence to the contrary yes you know like the amount of people who have their own experiences of this and then they grow up and and then it happens to the people that you know the children in their lives yeah and then they're shocked that it happened but like it happened to them yeah you know and and that's something that uh i don't know if it's because no one talks about it or everyone kind of, when it happens to them, you feel very isolated and you f- think that you're the only one that it happens to until you grow up and then you start talking about it to right. other people and then you realize how incredibly common it is. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, I know uh, when it happened to me as a child, I said, if I don't talk about this, it didn't happen, it's not real. Mm-hmm. Talking about it makes it real. Um, of course, of course, it was very real, and it affected my the the re, it had a strong reality in my life. But um, but it's just this fear of talking, this, this impossibility of of talking about it until you're ready. Mm-hmm. But again, it it, go, it goes back to the um, it's it's about power over somebody weaker than you are, mm-hmm. and oftentimes it's because when you were weaker that power had been exploited. Yes. And it's a little... I, I hope that that it's because of that sort of addressing that power imbalance because I really don't want to believe that everyone's, like, evil and I don't really... Yeah. I don't really think that that is the case, but I do think that some people have had some very negative experiences in life that has really shifted how they view life. Right. And that's really tricky because it, it you can't always, you can't just like walk around and just immediately know who's going to be you know exactly awful. exactly and yes. like kids and the people and the perpetrators of this sort of thing are wounded people themselves yeah and how do you get help for those people before they commit before they uh, you know before they become predators yeah and i think like the ways that we handle these sorts of situations um, are not really ideal like mm. a lot of what we tend to do is banishment, you know, like right. someone is, is terrible. We're not lo- going to associate with them anymore. We won't talk to them. And that's really fair for the victims. Absolutely. Yes. But I do think that then it becomes a community's problem to reach out to this person. Uh, and try exactly. And, fix and the difficulty with that is what if this person who has done this is a respectable member of the community and a lot of people are, are depending on them for this, that, and the other, um, what I've Which seen, is often the case. Yes. What, what I've seen happen um, a few times is that the community will refuse to believe the victim mm-hmm. because they cannot risk losing that community member, which is so sad because it's placing the adult is more important than, than the child. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a really sad thing that when, when it happens and uh, the police are always wrestling with that and the justice system is always wrestling with it like... You know, I, I, I have a hunch that it this kind of problem can only be solved on uh, the community level. And there are some Native communities that have done really well in dealing mm-hmm. with this. 
um, using talking circles mm -hmm. and and that sort of thing, and to 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 uh, create healing and also to uh, to hold people accountable at the same time. I remember my first experience in a talking circle in high school, and it was mind blowing. Yeah, like it I is. could not believe that that a anyone did this. Um, because it was so different from my own experience up until that point. Mm -hmm. um, and B, that, that if some people do this, and I saw how incredibly transformative it can be, why aren't we doing this? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's uh, to, to enter a talking circle, you have to really enter a place where you are totally in the moment and you're, you're stilling, you, you got to shut your mouth until it's somebody hands you the feather, the talking stick. And, uh, and you really have to listen to what other people are saying and, and all that silence. Mm -hmm. There's so much silence usually in a talking circle and, and it is, a, you're right, it's a profoundly moving experience. And, uh, when you, it's it's kind of something that doesn't fit in well in the world as we live in <laughs> right now. Everything's everybody's rushing around trying to get everything done. Like who has time for a talking circle? But it, but you're right. It's it's transformative of 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 individuals and of relationships. Well, yeah, it's kind of the epitome of accountability because you have everyone who is affected yes. by whatever has occurred to be there, and yes. everyone has a say. Yes. And so what often happens in like the judicial system that we have is there's a lot of separation between the perpetrator and the victim. Like largely it's very like well-meaning because mm -hmm. it's trying not to like, you know, cause more pain, I guess. But like you kind of need to go through that pain in order to like really heal yeah. and change things. Yeah. And if the if the perpetrators of their of these whatever crime is is, you know, happened, don't see the actual effect of their actions from a person to person yes. level, it's going to be really hard for them to actually see it as something that is important. Exactly. They need to hear that. They mm -hmm. need to hear it. And, and the victims need to need to be able to speak that pain to them. Absolutely. Yeah. And in like a space where you're not, it's not just like a scary one-on-one -on -one situation, yeah. which often ends up happening. Yeah. Um, if it happens at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you're there and you're supported by your community so that if you do break down, if you do have a lot of trouble with it, the people are there and they're there holding space for you and the person who has caused you pain hears it. Mm -hmm. See, that's, that's huge. Yeah. It never happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's just hope it grows. All, all these, all these, uh, you know, the, the thing is, if a practice seems good and it's working, let's just hope that it grows, that it keeps mm -hmm. growing, and, and that's how things get better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I really hope that, like, that would be really cool if that was, like, the way things go yes. from here on out. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you can definitely implement that within, like, smaller communities. And yeah. And within smaller groups, it, it mm -hmm. can be done. And then if you, and then you have a, a large community that's made up of these smaller groups, then it can be, can be very effective. And then, of course, the groups will, will keep growing um, among themselves. But another uh, practice that I really um, admire is that of the Quakers, who, when they have board meetings or when they have, when they have meetings, they don't, it's not a majority wins. They have to reach 100% consensus. So that means sometimes they're discussing things for ages, but when they get done, nobody walks away thinking they got the dirty end of the stick mm -hmm. because you have to be able to persuade those people that this is the best way to do it. 
Mm-hmm. And, and everyone gets a chance to say, like, this is a problem, and you address exactly. it. Exactly. Everything yeah. is addressed, and it's very time-consuming. But once a decision is made, there are no negative re- repercussions mm-hmm. of that be- because of somebody disagreeing with that or wanting it to go their way. Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic. Yeah. I, You know, I, we're, we're approaching more and more, like, a, a kind of a weird space in... in um, in our like economic history where we have more and more things that are automated. There's fewer and fewer things that people actually need to do. Mm-hmm. And yet for some reason we're still holding on to this idea of having to work like 40 hours a week. Yes. Um, and <laughs> which is and insane. We're still pulling our hair out for not having enough time. And I like, no <laughs> people should work less and we should do like, all of these things more <laughs> exactly exactly Spend more like, time do you want a healthy society or don't you do you want a healthy happy society where people feel uh, fulfilled where they're doing meaningful work where we have enough time for our relationships where we have time for friends and mm-hmm. uh and time to take care of the well uh, stop damaging the planet yeah <laughs> that's that's oh. huge i've already it's kind urgent. of like i mean i i tried it my best to be uh as environmentally friendly as I can and but I think for the most part in my brain I've kind of already accepted that like no we're we're pretty doomed <laughs> like at this point yeah, I'm I just kind of like there, Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'll keep trying to do what's right I but mean like yeah. keep, keep doing it yeah uh, I, I I think I'm just very pessimistic in in terms of like our ability to turn things around but there has been other like huge advances like we um we managed to like heal the ozone hole, like estimates of how how long we have um, to turn things around environmentally are are grim at best. Yes, but we have shown by you know repairing the ozone layer that these things can can be fixed with enough science and effort on everyone's part. Effort. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I I feel ashamed of myself for saying this, but. Everything I'm doing now to try to to try to respect the environment and uh, um, you know to be to be more eco friendly. I'm doing it so that when the catastrophe happens, I won't feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> and that so that sounds so pessimistic because I'm really hoping that that uh, it's it's like Stephen Jay Gould said. You know, we don't have to worry about destroying the Earth because the Earth has come back from far worse cataclysms than we could ever throw at it but we what we do need to worry about is destroying the environment that sustain that part of the environment that sustains us we have to worry about wiping each other out exactly possible to live yeah it's not a problem for the planet it's a problem for us exactly like are we going to continue to live will we have more generations of Mm -hmm. humans Mm -hmm. that is a question we don't know the answer to yet Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, the building of a pipeline. Hmm. Yeah. Things yeah. like that. Uh, not so great. Maybe let's yeah. not do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then again, you know, what do, <laughs> what do we do? You know, we, it's, it's, we're, using, we're still using so much oil. And it, how do you transport it safely? Um, you know, it's, it's a... You don't. That's, you leave it in the ground. Leave that's, it in the ground. Yeah, that's really the only alternative. Look for other solutions. Like, we have other solutions. We have other yeah. solutions that work yeah. great. But they, people they're are working so, great. Yeah, people are so stuck to habits, right? Yes. And, and businesses are so resistant to change. There it is. You just, saw, you just solved it. You just solved it. If we could just get people to be ready for change... 
<laughs> it's, it's like it. everything that we've talked, embrace change, love it. This new thing that we're, we're going to change the way we do things. Love that. Get excited about it. Jump on it because uh, that's a big part of, you know, like you were saying with feminism, you know, we it, it, things are very slow to change mm-hmm. because of us hanging on to outdated ideas that aren't serving us anymore. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of it can be really well-meaning because we have like, you know, positive associations with certain times in our lives and we don't mm-hmm. ever want those things to change. And I can understand that absolutely because, you know, when you have those magic times in your life, you want it to be like that forever. But what made it magic is because it was different from what happened before. Yes. And if you want to keep experiencing magic in your life, keep changing and keep changing exactly, with everything. Exactly, exactly. It has to be a creative, organic process, mm-hmm. not stasis. Stasis is death. Absolutely. Just keep changing. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, would you like to do another another? Piece? Yes. Uh, this song is, um, well, I wrote the lyrics for this. It was based on a poem that I wrote for my sister who passed away two years ago. Uh, she, Her name was Rita and she had uh, Down syndrome and she was the most creative, prolific artist I have ever known. Like she was constantly painting and drawing and uh, produced this huge body of artwork and um, after she passed away I was looking out from my apartment onto the rooftops and I could just imagine because she always um, referred to herself as a down syndrome angel Mm -hmm. so I I imagine these down syndrome angels dancing together um, in the kind of gauzy outfits that she used to draw And I thought, wow. And so I wrote a poem based on that. And then uh, my friend in uh, southern France named Reynald LaRue sent me a piece of music and said, can you do anything with this? And it was the perfect music for this song. So that just just sort of... when that happens? Yeah, oh, serendipity. (laughs) Gotta love it. So this is called Rooftop Angels. I could choose the company of any other 
what kind of art did did your sister make? She did watercolors. Um, she did um, mostly she uh, mostly markers. That was kind of her favorite medium. But she would also paint. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was just uh, she would listen to music and in her room. And uh, she did go to a sheltered workshop which I thought kind of interfered with her artistic career a bit. But she uh, was very much inspired by um, things that she would see on TV. She saw a documentary about the goddess Isis Mm. and the seven doors, the underworld and all that. And that inspired a lot of the imagery in her Mm. art. She would make up uh, fantasy worlds. Uh, One of her worlds was called the Land of Gallopy, and Gallopy was the name of a horse. Just a really uh, very rich, creative world she had it was uh, and she would just she was just so focused all the time on on just creating just drawing after drawing painting after painting and it was pretty amazing how did that affect you as an artist seeing that so close in in your life oh I was so jealous (laughs) I was so envious you know because of course she didn't have the responsibilities that I had she didn't have to make a living she didn't have to uh budget or run a household so she was free but I always would would look at that and think oh wow how fantastic that would be and I'm, I'm still working toward that toward being able to just you know not not have to well not just do nothing but art because I think that would be too much like work but um, just to be able to devote myself to my own imagination to mm-hmm. manifesting what's in my imagination And you mentioned uh, before that you're writing a book. Yes, yes, which kind of came as a surprise to me. It's a science fiction book, a novel, and I've never really been into science fiction, except every once in a while I'll come across a movie or a book that, wow. and And recently I saw the movie The Lobster, Oh, and, it's so good. Yeah, and, and the thing I liked about it was there wasn't a lot of science in it. <laughs> I guess it would be better to call it speculative fiction, and I think that's just a wonderful creative tool to say, what if you had this? Mm-hmm. What if you had this kind of a situation? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how the, the idea came to me in that form, because I've been in, in therapy a few times in my life and have really benefited from it immensely. But there was um, a disciple of Freud's who kind of moved away from Freud named Karen Hornet mm-hmm. in Germany who started really uh, asking questions about self-analysis. How far can we go with analyzing ourselves? Mm-hmm. And so from, from reading some of her work, I kind of got the idea, what if we could clone ourselves? So then, of course, it became this speculative fiction idea. What would it be like if we could create a, um, a clone of ourselves and program that with all of the best therapeutic, most successful therapeutic methods, and then that person would be our therapist, our own specially designed therapist just for us. And also, I should mention, Nikki, that the therapist wouldn't look like you. It would look like somebody in your past that you trusted. Oh, yes. A little bit yeah. of DNA mixing there. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, what, that's, that, cool. that's the appearance they give to it. And so, anyway, the book is about a woman who is on a spaceship coming back to Earth, and she has one of these therapists. Mm. And she's uh, exploring all these problems, and there's trouble on Earth. She's also a social activist. She's working. And so, anyway, so it's, it's, a, it's just an exp- exploration of, of what might happen. 
Yeah, self-analysis. That's yeah. really cool. I, yeah. I really like that that way of, of like creating that other world aspect to it. Yeah. Um, Let me know when it's out. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It, 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 it's going to take a while. I think it's going to be a couple of years before it go, comes out. But I have a, my first book is coming out in October. Oh, that's so, so and, exciting. Yeah. It's called Dervish at the Crossroads. It's good. It's, it's uh, published by um, Guernica Editions in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of telling the story of my career as a freelance uh, music journalist because I've interviewed a lot of musicians and composers cool. like in the last 20 years and of course that whole thing was also feeding into my quest to figure out what music is mm-hmm. so it's kind of semi uh, autobiographical and also talking and there are many many quotes from many other musicians and composers mm. about the nature of music and how uh, the, one of the questions I asked was how has music changed since the year 2000 and that's a question I asked a lot of people and kind of figured it out, tried to figure it out myself. What, what, are, what are some names of some people that you've interviewed? Well, uh, I interviewed Rashid Taha, who passed away. He was a really a big rye artist in France, passed away last year, unfortunately. I didn't try to go after really famous people. I, I went after people whose music I loved. And that's one thing that has changed since the year, even since the year 1991, is that the really good people aren't rising to the top anymore. There's people coming out with amazing music, amazing spoken art, and the, um, I don't know, the, the music, the structure is not there to allow them to rise to the top the way that a Jim Morrison rose to the top or a Leonard Cohen mm-hmm. rose to the top. Sam Baker, um, let's see, um, Chiasma, a, a jazz pianist named... Um, Neil Crowley, who is a who was Adele's pianist on Rolling in the Deep. Whoa! And uh, but his but his music is actually much more interesting than hers. That's that's the, I mean I and I and I like Adele, mm-hmm. but he's a really creative uh, jazz pianist with a really interesting per- percussive kind of style. And he said he hates working with singers because they take so long to get it right. You have to do it over and over again. And, and I asked him what about Adele, and and he said, well, she's just about the only one who could just do it on the first take. So Adele doesn't mess around. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing he said about her was he, he, he said, I think the reason why she, she can just, she, she's not nervous about it. She can just come in and sing a song is that he says, I don't think she cares whether she sings or not. Hmm. He says, I think she would, she, if she had her choice, she would be in the music, she would be working in music, she'd be working in the music industry, but it's no big deal to her if tomorrow she lost her voice and couldn't sing. Whoa. Wouldn't be the end of the world. She's just she's not really that invested in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I also, like, I, I mean, who knows? Uh, because she, she's not here to speak for herself. herself. But, um, <laughs> but I, I feel like there is a sense of, like, when you achieve a certain level of success, even if it's not, like, you know, global, but, like, when you've, you've been doing music for a while, I think there is sort of a sense of, like, it's for you, and it's not really, like, it's great that other people enjoy it, and it's great to share that with other people, but mm-hmm. um, 
it becomes less of like a, a huge need. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't become a per- it's not so much a personal need. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And especially I'm not sure if this was like at you know, once she was already famous or like before then or or at what point this was at, but I feel like if she had already achieved her fame at that point, then it's kind of like, well, you know, yeah, she did great. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's good at singing, like, you know, yeah. she doesn't have to prove it to anyone. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think uh, one of the things that I noticed with one of the changes that's happened in the in the music industry is that people are moving away from the music the music industry, obviously, and trying to find ways to make a living. And and a lot of times it's actually working. Like you have more people who are making thirty thousand dollars musicians making mm-hmm. making a living. You know, making thirty thousand dollars a year as musicians. Um, as opposed to waiting for that million dollar contract with the, mm-hmm. but they're they're doing it like they're finding very clever ways of making that happen of course most of them are still doing day jobs you know we still have you know you have a lot talk to a lot of people working in bagel shops and you know yeah. just trying to because <laughs> because the music isn't taking off or 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 they have a big fan base but not enough money's coming in because you know it's so easy to get music for nothing but I also um, I also interviewed Koshme Gastelum, who was in the Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, and the Dap Kings. All, but he but I interviewed him because of a really good recording that he did. But he uh, played for Amy Winehouse. The Dap Kings played for Amy Winehouse when she first had that wonderful performance on I think it was the BBC, the Brit Awards, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I said, because I know uh, it was, wasn't a very nice thing to say, and I felt guilty afterwards when she passed away. But I said, did she kind of rip off Sharon Jones a little bit? Because she, Amy Winehouse was kind of retro, and she's oh, yeah. the old soul singer kind of mm-hmm. thing. And he went, uh, um, <laughs> Amy Winehouse is a, is a really great talent, and she's, she's very original. And she, her songwriting was always very original and very uh, very moving and it was really tragic you know the way that she the, the way that she passed away anyway I don't know why I got off on that subject yeah I mean like regardless of of how just like losing Amy Winehouse it's like we could have had so much more. Oh my goodness! <laughs> like yeah. that—that that well was not tapped out. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not w- not by not. Yeah, she was so young. And I, I wonder what kind of music she'd be making now if she was still around. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we kind of uh, talked about uh, Jimi Hendrix. You know, what yeah. kind of music if he'd survived? What kind of music would he be making? Janis Joplin. What kind mm-hmm. of music? Mm-hmm. And we kind of feel that as a loss. Yeah. yeah, but it isn't really. I mean, we just—it is what it is. Yeah. Their lives were what they were, and uh, we just need to be grateful for what they what they did produce, mm-hmm. which was quite quite a lot. Yes, and incredibly influential. Yes, very influential <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, would you like to do a poem? Uh, yes, actually, I would. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one thing that I thought was like. Uh, especially remarkable about doing a show with you was that I don't come across many poets who are also musicians and who like integrate the two of them within right. their set. You yeah. know, like uh, I find uh, I know a lot of slam poets and they do their slam poetry and that's fine. And I know a lot of musicians and I do know people who do both, but not a whole lot that cross them. 
you know? Yeah, I think my, the music kind of emerged out of the poetry. I've, I've always been fascinated with music, but never really uh, wanted to get serious about it. It was just what I did for fun. And then because of the rhythms of language, I started becoming more and more interested in, in, in uh, poems with music. And then, of course, you know, I don't know, just just the people I met encouraged me to do songs to their music. And so I would take a poem and make it fit music and, and found out that it was really not as impossible as, I, as I'd always thought. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been an organic process. Haven't thought about it too much. But uh, this song, uh, this, this is good. I'm going to do a poem called Village. And it came out of my experience with labor organizing back home in Nova Scotia. Um, what happened was that after two years of beating my head against a wall and trying to uh, get get uh, management to see our to to to, to be fair to us uh, and see us as human beings, I kind of looked at the world at large at that point and said, "Wait a minute, it's all like this. Any social activists out there are are really struggling with people who." just want power and are not interested in negotiating, not interested in creating a just society or even a just workplace. Yeah. 
fresh bread, strong beasts, and soup. A place where one must work at times, and two at times must not. So what, what was happening in your, um, when you were fighting for your workers' rights? Well, um, it was an organization. It was like a group home uh, for mentally challenged adults. And it was run by this board that every few years they'd do a purge and they would just fire everybody. And we all knew people. We had friends who had been kind of just let go for no reason. Mm. And it was a time when workers in that industry in Nova Scotia were starting to rally to get their rights. And another workplace had gone on strike. And of course, with the government, when you you can't give one workplace in that that area the same a raise or better working conditions that you don't give all of them. So conditions improved, and then the the the, the board of the association that I worked for started this purge again they started you could they started mm. letting people go for no good reason 
And because the clients that we took care of were very vulnerable, this was really disturbing for them to, to just, you know, they, they, they didn't have any security in their lives because there were really, uh, they didn't have any long-term, you know, workers there. And it was, it was, you need it was that kind of consistency it, when you're, they, when yeah, you're you need it. Homes, and, and, you know? and so every time they would lose somebody that they loved that had, that had cared for them, it was really hard. It was really hard for them. And so, and also because, the, the government was was granting us better pay and better better conditions. We our our lives were our our jobs were worth protect, protecting at that point because we were no longer just making minimum wage, mm-hmm. and um, there weren't a lot of workplaces. The, it's very low in southwestern Nova Scotia. It's pretty much a chronically you know lots of chronic unemployment, especially with the fishing industry going under, um, and so. Um, yeah, and they, I, I snuck around and I brought in a union and did all the things you got to do, signed everybody up. Nice. And God, how long did that process take? Uh, it didn't really take that long That's uh, neat, because I, everybody was ready. <laughs> I was, uh, so in the last like year or so, I was working at a place that unionized. It's been a year since that process was started. Right. And they're still in their like negotiations for collective Oh, well, the negotiations take forever. And that's where I got, that's where I I kind of was starting to approach burnout Mm -hmm. was because you you start out optimistic thinking, all we got to do is sit down and talk with these people Mm -hmm. and they'll get it. And they never did. It was just constant bashing our heads, and it was a it was took a really long time to get that collective agreement. You know, it was really hard. <laughs> I, so I I know someone who's currently struggling with this. Uh, do you have any any words of wisdom? Any any advice? Things you'd like to say for people who are struggling with unionization? Um, <laughs> I think if if the most important thing is if you have good relationships among the workers, and again, it goes back to solidarity. Solidarity is the only power that workers have, and, but if the, if the morale stays high and if, you, and if you have that solidarity, you can eventually get close to what you want. You won't be able to get everything that you want. And I, I also, in my experience, I, you can learn a lot from studying social psychology, Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one thing that I did, which was um, you ask for um, a big favor and then you ask for a smaller favor. Mm-hmm. You ask for a big favor that they can't do. And then so when you ask for the, 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 the small favor, they'll do it. So in comparison, it's much more rational. And exactly. Reasonable. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we really needed all the workers to show up to sign that agreement. And some of them were afraid because management would watch to see who would come to the meeting. And we really needed a hundred percent turnout for that so that they wouldn't say, Oh, well, you don't have any, the workers aren't even in favor of the union. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so before that I sent out a survey and, and just a a questionnaire asking questions. And uh, can you, can you fill out this survey? Well, a lot of people just didn't have time to fill out the survey. It was quite, quite an in-depth survey but the point of the survey was not to get information it was to ask them for for that favor the survey was the favor mm-hmm. and it actually worked like 100% of the workers ended up coming to vote on that on that collective agreement so that was a 
major success. That, that's Absolutely. what I would tell your friends. So, yeah, anything that you can learn from a social psychology and, and try to uh, promote worker solidarity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Solidarity for all. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been so lovely. It's been a huge treat for me. <laughs> <laughs> and good luck in your future endeavors. I can't wait to read your books. <laughs> oh, thank you, Nikki. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Unknown Artist. Uh, thanks to Godbird.com for hosting us, to the library who recorded this podcast before COVID. Stay safe, stay clean, stay healthy.